everyone. I'm Trish the Dish, and welcome back to the Gen X Voice Podcast, where I use my voice to help others share their voice from different backgrounds, experiences, and generations. Together, we can build bridges among different generations to connect and build a more tolerant world. This episode was recorded the Saturday after the events at the National Capitol in the United States. When I booked our guest, Joe, way back in November, neither one of us would have been able to foresee that we would be recording after such an historic event. But I did ask Joe to come on because of his studies in history in order to unpack and make parallels to politics in the U.S. today and to past governments. We cover a lot in this episode from growing up in the same small town in the Southern California desert, Monty Python, loan forgiveness, and how politics in the U.S. changed from the New Deal socialist thoughts of the early 20th century to the destruction of socialist thoughts after World War II, and how presidents from Nixon through Obama encouraged Americans to embrace financial power of companies and the creation of of the bootstrap theory, and how we got to where we were on January 6th. I've invited him to come back to do a part two later this spring, but I would really like to hear what you all think of guests and topics like this. A great place to do that is in the Gen X Voice Facebook group. This group is a great place to discuss the episodes and other random topics throughout the week, and my hope is to have you all comment about episodes, get some behind-the-scenes info on guests, see some videos I will be doing more of this year, and have a say on what I focus on in the podcast in terms of questions that you would like to hear from my guests um, or that you would like to hear my guests answer or topics you would like to hear more about. So get out your phones right now and search Gen X Voice, that's G-E-N-X, and the new word voice in Facebook, and like the page. I will send you a personal invitation into the group for all the intimate stuff I referred to a second ago. What are you waiting for? Do it now. And as always, check the show notes for links to my website to find all my social media, music, and things um, referred to in the show. I hope you enjoy the show and let me know in the group what your thoughts are. Did you know that there are over 1 million podcasts out there and over 30 million episodes? So why should you listen to Pod Jerky? Well, we have a little bit of something for everyone. We discuss topics such as fertility, pet peeves, Netflix reviews, music, conspiracy theories, and everything in between. We will entertain you, make you laugh, and make you cry. Our amazing guests are also sure to put a smile on your face. Tune in every week to Pod Jerky on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts can be found. Pod Jerky, bringing you original flavor. Hi, Joe. What's up, Trish? How's it going? Uh, it's it's pretty darn good. It's a it's a Saturday, and it's um, you know just families uh, hanging out, watching a movie, and I get to come in here and talk to you for a while. So, man, everything's everything's great right now. Sounds like a good uh, sounds like a good time to me for sure. Yeah. Um, I'm super excited to talk to you. Thank you. Uh, because you are one. You are the first. Mm. 
guest that I'm having on the show from when I lived in Joshua Tree slash Yucca Valley. Yeah. And I'm so excited about that because I've, I've really peeled back the layers of like people that I know in Arizona, people in Illinois, people in Flagstaff, but it's kind of cool to kind of go where it all began in a way. So, yeah. <laughs> so Joe, why don't you uh, tell the listeners um, when, what year you were born and what generation you identify with? I was born in 76. Um, as far as the generation I identify with, um, this is a topic that, that I think we can get into, maybe if not this time, some other time. But um, I've done a little bit of looking into the generational gap, kind of like arguments and stuff like that. And I'm not saying I, I disagree but uh, entirely, but um, I, I identify with the generation right now that is dealing with the, the repercussions of what is going on right now. So if I identify with millennials and I identify with millennials or, or, or uh, uh, zennials or whatever the case may be, um, that's really who I truly feel like I identify with right now. Who, who, the people who are experiencing what I, what I deem and what I subscribe to uh, uh, as being the material conditions of our day. So if that makes me sound or act or believe or vote more like a, a you know, like a 20 year old, then that's who I identify with. But I am an Xer. I mean, I, I lived through the nineties and all that kind of stuff. I just don't, I don't necessarily know how that um, um, goes into making me who I am. So. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I think that's kind of the beauty of our generation is that we, because we are kind of the wallflowers, like we've just sort of been observing. Um, I think that we're still so connected with what's going on in the world, which ladies and gentlemen, we will get deeper into that in a sec <laughs> because we are recording this the Saturday after yeah. the biggest uh, tyrannical experience to ever occur on American soil. Well, but I we'll mean, we'll get back to that. <laughs> since the <laughs> civil god dang war, then I mean, yeah, man. Yeah, you're exactly right. Like, yeah, but yeah, we'll come back to that one. So, so put a pin in it. Um, (laughs) But no, I totally get that because um, we definitely, uh, I I know a lot of Xers that are just um, definitely voting wise and the way they view the world is a lot more younger um, than older. So I don't know where that puts our generation exactly, except for that's that sounds pretty Gen X of us. Yeah, it seems like I mean, I mean, if you're voting, I mean, to use to use that terminology, if you're voting old right now, uh, as if you're voting like, you know, if we want to say stereotypically like a boomer would vote right now, then I would just have to ask that person. Okay, then I mean, what makes you vote the way you vote? You know, are you comfortable? Are you retired? Do you own a do you own a freaking uh, used car lot? You know, do you make a uh, 172 grand a year? I mean, what's your comfort? What where are you at? Uh, and, and as opposed to say somebody like me, it's like you know, well, why do you vote the way you vote? Why do you care for the things you care about? I'm I'm voting for things that are going to put forth very stark changes because I see that that's what's needed. I don't I don't hem and haw, you know, about well, I can go for maybe a, a you know, a social model or a public option for healthcare. No, 
absolutely not. I'm at my point, a point in my life where I say there's no alternative but Medicare for all. There's no alternative. It's, it's, it's an injustice. I mean, if Thomas Jefferson was writing the freaking Declaration of Independence right now, he would say that, you know, I think he would say that this is an injustice. This is something that makes us unfree, the ability to only attain health care if we can afford it. So those are the things that, again, kind of going back to the generational thing, and I'm not going to uh, keep on that, but um, why do you vote the way you vote? Well, I argue that it should be. It may not always be, but it should be because not because of some ideal that we're trying to reach or mimic or, or you know, kind of posture towards, but because of the things that are literally affecting our lives directly. And definitely the people, you know, uh, the lives of those around us and definitely the lives of, uh, of the people who are way less fortunate than, than the majority of us. So, Right. And it may be debatable, but the majority of us may actually be the ones that are suffering mm, um, as we see the, the, the poverty level as well as what COVID's doing to people um, losing jobs, especially the jobs that we, uh, you know, a lot of us have, have looked to as like a, a sort of safety rope uh, service industry. I mean, so it, it'll be interesting to see how um, how this all unfolds. But I really appreciate the fact that you're saying, um, you know, if you're voting more in a, in a certain way, that's that's kind of different than what generations under the boomers would be voting. Um, you kind of hit a lot of things that I that I know for sure are the boxes that are ticked by a lot of Trump supporters I know. Um, and, and even ones that aren't boomers. So, um, I like that. I like that you brought that up. And, and what I find that it, it interesting that you brought that up, we both grew up in a community that was very small yeah, and very, uh, if, if no one knows, well, everyone probably knows about Joshua Tree National Park. We lived there when it wasn't even the a park. It was just a monument. monument. Five bucks to get in. Tons <laughs> of dirt roads, right? Like five um, bucks to get in. Yep. That why five that bucks, and so most of the time they weren't five even at the window to yep. collect it. <laughs> yeah, uh, we had one high school that mm-hmm. dumped in probably twenty-five elementary schools. <laughs> I swear to God, like the 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 routes, especially when I moved from Yucca Valley over by um, the the seven. The what's it that Seven Eleven over by Kickapoo Trail and um, Western Hills? Yeah, or not Western Hills by the Ford, uh, the old Ford yeah. uh, car dealership. Right when you come up that. That's Mongo where you grade. lived. Just when I first moved there, but then I lived all over. Okay, so okay. just like my life, Joe, yeah. <laughs> I lived off of Banning. I lived over by you know the Boys and Girls Club. I lived over behind Pizza Chalet. I lived. I mean. This is that's dope. That's crazy. No, so same thing with me. Uh, we were all over the place, but but yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I said, we could unpack childhoods yeah. and stuff in a different episode. But you and I, I don't know if this, how many other people in our generation could see this, but Yucca Valley High School was literally just a melting pot of 
the dirty desert rat, poor mm-hmm. kids, dirt balls, um, which I was called yep. a lot. Yep. Hessians. Yep. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you brought that up. <laughs> the jocks. Yeah. I mean, it was a Faders, John Hughes yep. film in, in its entirety, but also in the socioeconomic stages of it all. Man. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Annette and I, um, who, uh, uh, is my wife and uh, and who I met at Yucca Valley High School. Actually, I think I met her at Lock and Ten. I think we were in junior high band together. Um, but yeah, uh, my my wife, who's from the exact same region, who you know from from band and stuff like that. Um, she and I have had these conversations. We've had the same conversations where the people who were um, it's this really funky thing. You, you there was this huge huge amalgamation of all these different classes and and these supposedly the the rich kids and stuff like that were were really just families who had just like a little bit of an edge up like socioeconomically but that put them well i don't i don't and i don't know how you felt about it but yucca valley high school to me was a toxic environment it was it was not a very healthy one because the there were really such disparate cliques and the and the upper popular so-called cliques were very very often mean-spirited, it seemed like. I was bullied. Uh, Annette was bullied. I was bullied, and, too. Yep. I was bullied, too. I was I was uh, barked at and called rat face <sighs> and rat girl. So, and and, 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 and my, Michael doesn't believe us. Uh, believe me when I say this. I know, because um, everybody loved Mike. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, Trish, you were friends with one of the most popular girls in school. And I was like, yeah, like my senior year. Right. Like there were still three years ahead of that. And mm-hmm. no, but I totally agree with you to the point, Joe, where when I was 18, well, I turned 18 in the middle of our senior year, but the minute I could get the fuck out of mm-hmm. Yucca, I was like, see ya, and never, except to come and visit, live there maybe for a month or two here and there, Uh, but I was out. Yeah, and I I don't think a lot of people um, did that same thing. I think a lot of people just stayed there and stayed in the safe little pond, and they're still there today, you know, and they have their families, but they're they're basically just the same generational people, and and we know those same people who were there at Yuck at the same time, you know, they, they had lived there for forever, and their parents had lived there, and they, they just had these ties there, and and the the idea of not getting out of that place was insanity. I mean, I dropped out of high school because I hated that place, so I didn't graduate. You know, I, I dropped out because it was too much. It was too much going to that school with archaic uh, systems of uh, discipline and punishment there as well. If I would have decided to go back and like, okay, I'm going to get my crap together, I would have been looking at like a month and a half of solid detention every single day with an administrational staff that was not willing to like work with me, a counseling staff that wasn't calling me saying, hey, look, we can work this out, you know, kind of thing. It was just like, look, you can come and, and, and suffer this consequence or not, you know? And so I didn't. I just flat dropped out and I left and I I, I did come back at one point. I, I like was kind of moving all over the place. Uh, same thing. Uh, but as soon as I came back, I could not leave that place again. It's just, I just, um, for some reason, when you when you come up that grade and you crest over that yucca grade hump and, and you and dip down. And see the first Joshua the, trees. Yeah. And you see the city laid out in front of you. It's like, that's the point that my stomach drops. You know, it's kind of like. Same. Same. No. Yeah. So kind of really uh, unfortunate that that's our childhood uh, place because it's such a beautiful place. And (laughs) and people from Orange County and LA, they're like, Joshua Tree. And I'm like, you know, Joshua Tree. 
Yeah, yeah the most toxic place in the world. Yeah. Well, what's funny for me, Joe, is that it actually wasn't my childhood because I was 12 by the time I moved there. So I had only experienced about a month of sixth grade at Yucca Elementary before going into La Contena and Yucca. And I, and I still feel that way. So <laughs> you have 12 years on me. <laughs> of living there and I still feel the same even talking about it envisioning um and 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 envisioning the car going up that last grade and and for those listeners who don't understand what in the world we're talking about uh we, we you have to literally drive up mountains yeah in the desert to get to this high desert because mm -hmm. the uh I believe the elevation's about 3,000 yeah. feet as opposed to like zero or below sea level in Palm Springs. Yeah. And you go up these series of windy roads that people tear down at 80 miles an hour. Yeah. And then you get to this really um, sort of uh, steep, straight hill. And the minute you get over that, it is just like this town has never changed since mm. 1970. No. And it's all laid it's out in front of you. It's all, you every, can see the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And it still makes me want to yeah, yeah. puke. Yeah. Uh -huh. Well, that I was amazing. Oh, go ahead. I, I was just gonna say I wasn't from there either. I I, I grew up in uh, I grew up in the the earliest stages in Orange County. I was in Corona for a while. I didn't come to Joshua Tree until second grade. That's still several oh. years, you know, that's, that's four solid years of experience before you got there. And so I had set some roots. I had some friends. I met Mike and stuff like that. You coming up into the desert and basically getting your first taste of it at La Contenta is a whole bag of traumas I would love to unpack with you someday. Cause I cannot imagine <laughs> being like, welcome to the city. You're going to go to La Contenta. I cannot imagine. What a grinder. Well, I did get my feet wet at Yucca Valley uh, Elementary for a, solid um, month. For a month with, 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 <laughs> with, with certain people that were part of the upper, you know, echelons, crust. Yes. I, I wasn't sure if I could say that word correctly. So I was just going to skip it mm -hmm. um, because I seem to not be able to produce words very well. When I'm recording. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, mm -hmm. yeah, we'll have to unpack that trauma someday because yes. you're right. It's, and I feel so validated. So thank you so much because yeah. I, I do think it's interesting that, you know, wherever I've lived and I have, you know, haven't really put any roots down ever since, except for maybe now in Phoenix, where I'm celebrating six years of the same address, the same job in the same you. city. That's epic for me. Absolutely. Um, none of those things have ever happened. But um, I've always been so fascinated by people that are like, born and raised, parents born and raised, grandparents born and raised. Like the idea of these deep, deep roots in the communities I've lived in blows my mind. Like, mm -hmm. I, I don't know about you, but I just feel, I just don't feel connected uh, that deeply to any place. Like if someone were to say, Trish, you know, we're going to go ahead and just have you move to, uh, you know, Costa Rica for the rest of your life or maybe six months and we'll pay for it. I, I'd be like, bye. Like this place <laughs> never existed. <laughs> Poof, vapor. Uh, and Trish, Trish in the thin air. <laughs> I mean, do you feel the same I, way I because do. of that lack of connection? I don't know. And I, you know, yeah. And I, I kind of turned my, I mean, if I, 
if I talk to somebody like that, if I think of like, like, you know, I, we have a, we have a, another friend, uh, from, from, uh, Yucca and I'm not, I won't, I won't say names except for Mike. We have, we have a mutual friend who's been there, you know, every day it seems like, and he's going to be In there both forever. Our lives. I met, I met him at, when I was 12 and I first moved there Mike? and, um, yeah. Really? Did you not know that? No, I didn't know that you met Mike like initially first. Is he? Are you saying that he's well, like one of the first people you maybe, met? Maybe, maybe not first. Okay. Um, At La Contena. Because it was when, yeah. Well, it was when I moved to Joshua Tree. And his dad and my grandpa both got wasted at the same VFW in Joshua oh, Tree. Dude, that's so freaking so awesome. So I lived. Oh my God. Yeah, I, I was on the same bus route to La Contena as him. Because I moved in with my grandpa in like eighth grade. Yeah. No, seven, I'm seventh grade, end of seventh grade. So maybe I was 13. But anyway, um, and <laughs> I can't believe you don't know this story. We were set up on a date, on like a blind date for brunch at the VW by his dad and my grandpa. That's adorable. And we were just kind of like, hey, <laughs> but, but for whatever reason, instead of romantically, we've just been like, Buds. you know, brother, sister. Yeah. yeah. He's the one guy on the planet that I'll call my brother. So, wow. um, but, and, and, uh, yeah. So, and you met him at La Contena? No, hell no. So, um, so, um, um, we came to the desert. Um, he's totally listening to this episode, by the way. So yeah. he's going to be like, oh, my God, you guys stop talking about me. No, I told him. I told him. I'm like, by the way, we're going to talk about you. He's like, and you're going to. I'm like, yeah, I'm not I'm not really asking if we can talk about you. I'm telling you, we're going to talk about you. So it's going to happen. It's, gonna, it's, it's, it's so unavoidable, organic. dude. So <laughs> we I was living at this place right off of 29 Palms Highway. Uh, which is the middle of the Joshua Tree, uh, across the street from uh, the CHP station, which is right by the hospital. And so, for all your listeners and stuff like that, it's it's basically a stretch of long desert road that's interrupted by all of a sudden, oh, there's a police station, oh, there's a hospital, and then you get back to a long stretch of desert road, and oh, there's like the cemetery, back to a long stretch of desert road kind of thing. So there was this little place right across the street from the police station, a little place called Alice's, Alice's Bar and Restaurant, I think it was. And he'd have to uh, double check this for me. I think it was called Alice's. And his dad went there. His dad went there as just like a watering hole. So this one day, and we live like a quarter mile down the road from it. This is dirt road. So I'm out there playing outside the house, and this kid's just walking down the road. And I'm like, you know, who, who the heck is this kind of thing? So I just start walking towards him. <laughs> and it's Mike. And it's just like, and we had known each other from, from school. We, we were in Mrs. Johnson's class in second grade together at the same time. And it was like, oh, hey, Hey buddy, like I know you from class kind of thing. And we just played and stuff like that. And then we, he went back. So Mike is literally like among the very first people I met when I came up to the desert. Cause that was very, very early on. Um, and so, yeah, That's I mean, so I've known Mike, I'm seven, like the 30, first person for both of us. Yeah, 37 so years I've known that guy or no, 27 yeah. years. I think it was no, 37, 37 years. I was seven years old. So I, I've Welcome known him longer than anybody. Old. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah same with true. Michael. Michael is my oldest friend I on this planet. There is no other human that I've known as, as long as long as Michael Rucker. So it's pretty important. And, and, and don't don't inflate his ego. So let's stop talking no, about Mike. But, but he is the best friend possible. Ever. <laughs> yes. He is. And yeah. and just just so the listeners get an idea of why we're like spinning off on this, I right now live in Phoenix because he allowed me to be like a landing 
his home was a landing zone for me when I moved from Portland. Yep. Um, after I picked up my life and 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 changed careers and did all this stuff, and I decided that I wanted to be within you know at least drunk bicycle riding distance from him because he brews beer. Yeah, and you and he talk pretty much. If not daily, no, almost on the never... daily. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, every time I'm over there, because um, he's part of my bubble couple. Yeah. Um. He, you're, you're, you're calling, and it's so rad. Um. <laughs> because it's like such a, it's just he's also your brother. So. Yes. Enough about Michael Rucker. Yep. <laughs> no. Um. I don't even remember how we spiraled down that, except for that, uh, the roots thing. Like, have you felt? Look, when when like, people say that they stay in a in a in a place. I wasn't talking about Mike actually. That 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 common acquaintance we have is just somebody I was talking about. Like you know, he's going to be there the rest of his life. And I think about that kind of thing. Like, and I just question my. I just I kind of look at them with a turned head. Anybody that lives in the same place that the, their parents lived and that they're going to raise their kids in and that kind of thing. Um, I'm not like talking smack or anything like that. I just turn ahead at that because I don't understand. I, I wonder like, well are you very comfortable? Are you very, are you just very comfortable where you're at? You know, do you not want to go other places? Uh, I hate moving, but I've lived all over the country like you have. And I, I find value in that. I, I like the fact that I've lived in Utah and Vegas and, and Eugene and now Montana, all across Southern California, um, uh, Colorado. It's just, I don't know. It builds character or something. I, I really don't know where to go with that. I just, I'm puzzled like you are uh, with people who just kind of want to just stay. I found the place I want to be forever and um, I'm young and I'm never going to leave this place. And I just go, well, all right. I mean, I, I don't get it, but you know, bless. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I've racked my head about this so many times and the only thing I can think of is just that there's not really, um, this sort of explore, explorer mentality that I think, and this is maybe the weirdest segue you've ever heard in your life, but you've listened to my podcast enough to know Let's um, see it. that maybe why you tended to study history is the idea of exploring um, just, just humans' mentality and, and, and our stories. And every time you move you get to explore humans and their different mentality. At least that is for me. I'm so cheesy, but that is literally how I feel. I jump in the car, I drive everywhere I can. I go, you know, I find every, you know, independent bookstore or, or restaurant. Um, you know, I just try to find where's where are these where are these histories, where are these stories? But is that is that kind of the same for you? Absolutely now. Getting into history, absolutely not. Um, I, I decided to go back to school and I left a very cool, very comfortable job. I was like a, a construction site safety inspector. It was a dope job. I was just on construction sites all day, walking around, basically monitoring it for OSHA violations, doing this and that. It was a really cool job. Loved it. Uh, making great money. I thought, well, uh, I think I'm about tapped out. I think I've hit about the max I can do. I got to go back to school and get a degree before I can make myself kind of more marketable kind of thing. So I'm going to go back to school. And I love watching things like Band of Brothers. I love watching things like Private Ryan. I'm a total history buff, you know, about World War II and stuff like that mainly. And, and, and uh, I've been told um, 
it's a truism that you just go back to get a, a school and get a degree in anything and you'll be freaking, you'll be at the top of your tier in all your uh, job applications thereafter. We'll come back to that one later on. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a Gen X Let's come back to that. Thing. Yeah, it's kind of like a Gen X thing. They told us that yes. literally. But, um, so I went back to school yep. and I thought that, you know, I, I, I do my schooling and stuff like that. I declare myself a history major. And then right hook, right across the jaw, just like what you – Basically, what you thought you knew about history is all garbage. You don't know anything about history. It's all a different, it's entirely a different approach, uh, which I would love to lay out because I think it's interesting, but I'm not going to do that right now. It's just basically, it's a, it's a different thing than most people think. It's not just a collection of facts. I thought I was going to start studying World War II, become basically a repository of World War II facts to the nittiest, grittiest details, and that would therefore make me uh, an expert and a historian that people would then come to to find out this facts. Like I literally thought that like being a historian was just a, a freaking Wikipedia page or maybe a little bit more academic than that. Um, I didn't know about, uh, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know about contextualization. I didn't understand about research and analysis. You research something that maybe 400 people before you had researched, but it's your job to come up with something new, not because you have to, but because you think it's there. You know what I mean? So if you look at something and you find something new, Eureka. If you look at something, you basically don't find anything new, then, then you know what I mean? Then, then you don't pursue something just because you need to write something. You're looking for new interpretations. And so sometimes we call that revisionist history, and it can be, but I, I got clocked by this idea of what history truly is, and I freaking ran with it. And it, and it has completely transform my life in that everything I look at nowadays tends to be like a historian, which can be very annoying, uh, especially for people that talk with me, I think, you know, because I, I don't, try not to be like, you know, well, actually historically, but it, it, it's hard <laughs> not to sometimes, but, um, right. but I, I, I now go to different cities. I now have an interest in going to different places because of that historical interest. Before, I completely lacked that because I didn't really, I don't really care about like Native American stories or struggles before getting a degree in history because now, one, I care about human suffering and human strife and I care about oppression. I care about tons of stuff we could go into. But I also want to try and understand their stories to see how it better fits into the things I already know, make connections, again, contextualize, see the, the similarities into things I already know and already believe or whatever, and then see the things that diverge, which allows me to recontextualize or reanalyze. Uh, you know, that's why I love what you were just talking about of going to a different city and learning about it and stuff. Um, it's very fulfilling. It's, it's just really helps me kind of keep striving to attain, you know, just the, I don't know, being the person I want to be, um, which is not a, a, an intellectual or an academic bore, but just somebody who has a, a, an understanding of why we are here right now kind of thing. Wow. Yeah. That is definitely so far from what you would, or I would perceive a history major because I love history. Mm -hmm. And um, as a French major in my undergrad, I was, you know, really drawn to French history. I mean, we're talking from wow. the cave paintings on, like, and then I was going to go get my master's degree at one point in, um, I was going to do like, uh, from French or at least Mediterranean history from like 
from the Romans to say, you know, the dark ages or something, because I, I mean, for a summer, I read a book that was like the history of the Mediterranean peoples and I could not put the book down and it was, was not fiction. I can't remember. It was a green book. I mean, this was, was like thick? 10 years. Oh, it was huge, yeah, huge you, book. You've read yeah. freaking Broadell's history of the Mediterranean. That's, that's one of the most, wow. That's a trip. I, that's so outstanding. Do you, you have it? Yeah, of course it's downstairs. Dude, you have to take a picture and send it to me because okay. I've lost it in all my travels. I can't always keep my books. That's like the first records, books, cassettes, like that shit just doesn't come with you when you oh, move as much as sucks. I do. I'm so sorry for right? that. Dude, yeah. Nothing, yeah. Nothing like same. losing a book, man. Same, same. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I can't believe you know that book, but yeah, that, and that really just, um, so I, I guess for me, it was just, I, I, I just love, and then I would, I've recently binged, um, from Neanderthal to, uh, I get really bored around the Victoria era because mm, we all do. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like what is his name? Like, is it, is it Henry the eighth? Like he's just such a bastard. Yeah. And that just, you start beginning to see how the creation of white supremacy and people oh, elitism and all of these things just start coming into fruition in such a stark manner Monarchy. that I can't, yeah, I just can't get past that. Now, I love the French Revolution. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, if you want to watch a documentary or a docuseries on, you know, the Native people in any part of the world, mm -hmm. um, it's just not really there. Um, and And I get bored. I get bored of hearing of you know what's what happened in Salem and and I'm sorry listeners you know I'm not trying to be anti obviously I understand that if it wasn't for white settlers I my ass wouldn't be here right. however it's just something happens between the time of I don't know and maybe I'm stupid because it mm. obviously happened in the Roman era but something happens around that Victorian era where I'm just and I and I felt it when I lived in Europe when I'd go into the like the Notre Dame or like the Paris at Versailles or you know like the, in in um, uh, Vienna you know you just like just gold where Marie Antoinette comes from these, oh, these gold palaced rooms yeah. and it made me physically ill yeah. I, I hated the Rococo the fact design that, and it's just well so just opulent. because the fact that I knew that people were fucking starving in the streets yeah. and living in their sewage yeah and you know just the suffering that would occur in 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 mass yeah. all around Europe during the time of the Victorian era. Right. And it's the Victorian area that basically, I mean, it's the, it's the stuffiness and it's the decorum. It's the, uh, it, it's so many elements of basically, uh, you know, despite the, you know, despite knowing what's going on underneath, um, it's, it's the, the focus isn't there. The focus is on the, you know, the monarchy and the, and the prestige and the, and the, you know, trying to save, uh, the image of the monarchy, uh, the problem with, with that you have, um, and the, the same problem I have now is that we've read too many historical, you know, accounts <laughs> of like that, of what the people's history, what yeah. was going on down in the freaking, oh, like you yeah. said, the, 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 the sewers where the people were literally living and so like that and the bread riots and the freaking, that, the, the suffering. And, and so when, once you get an expose, uh, 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 once you get exposed to that, and I'm not saying this is like a truism or something, cause it's not, 
I know plenty of people who have been exposed to that. Uh, you know, what I mean to say is a people's history. Um, but, you know, some people are exposed to that, like, you know, um, and they have this, this reaction like, well, you know, yeah, that's bad. I'm not going to say it's not bad, but I still, for some reason, they still kind of keep latched on to the idea, but the order must be kind of uh, preserved because the order is kind of what's going to protect the most people or that's the, that's the institution that we must kind of like, you know, preserve and protect. And that's, boy, I'm about to go off on a freaking tear here, but, and that's oh, no, usually, no, no. Uh, I feel like we're, we're going, we're going in the right direction, Joe, because this is exactly where <laughs> are you leading. baiting me? You're, you're I, baiting not, me. <laughs> isn't that my job? What are we going to transition to right now? <laughs> But when you have the freaking idea of like a material, kind of like the materiality versus like the ideal of what you want to preserve, people like you and me see that and go, well, you know, fuck that. Like, I want to focus more on like what the, tell me more about the suffering. And, and, and so they weren't allowed to eat and they were starving because of why? Um, and, and, and the human experience and, and, go, and human experience. that to me is, you know, how the fuck did those people keep going every day? You know, I, I don't know about you. I mean, just to get it a little light for a second, sure. but I love Monty Python, uh, search for the Holy grail. Yes. It, I saw that in high school, literally fell over backwards laughing when the bunny rabbit comes out and, you know, it's got razor sharp teeth. Um, <laughs> I, and, and to this day, I chuckle by myself, totally sober watching it. Although it's much more fun when you're not sober. Much. Um, but no, it's a good the, movie you know, regardless. Such a great movie. So the one thing that I thought was so brilliant about it is the, you know, and this is when I'm in high school, I don't really fully grasp a lot of things, but I do know the plight of the Native Americans. I had some hippie friends of, mm -hmm. of, of my parents and, or, you know, my mom and stuff. Um, so I had a kind of an idea of, you know, obviously black my black friends, you would tell me, you know, the suffering. I listen to hip hop. I mean, hell, yeah. if you've never listened to hip hop, right. you don't understand what's going on with Black Lives Matter. But anyway, um, there's that one scene where, you know, he comes up and he's like, they're hey, just with toiling his in a field. Yeah, and they're packing mud. And, and, and he's, he's like, I'm your king. I'm King Arthur. And he's like, you're not our king. I, you know, I'm not going to do all the voices, but he's you like, you're not my king. We're, we're a collective anarchist. Yeah. Co an anarchist collective. And I, I didn't really know what those words meant until I watched it a few, cause I always try to watch it every few years. And then after, after I studied a little bit more into anarchy and things that's like that, fascinating. I was like, that's so brilliant that they put that in there. That and glides the over shit. you and glides over you and glides over you until you read yes. something and you watch it again. You're like, Whoa, Whoa. What, the, what did you say? <laughs> Anarchist collective. Yeah. <laughs> You're anarcho syndicalist. Yeah, yeah. What do you, what <laughs> And that's the great oh, thing about freaking happening. like, yeah, ex exactly. And that's the great thing about kind of keeping on reading and stuff like that. And, and then you rewatch and reread things and you're like, Whoa, I never, I never picked this up before, but, um, that's, that's exactly right. How do they keep going and stuff? Well, um, you know how they kept going that you kept going because you have literally no other freaking option. I mean, you're tied to the land, right. and blah, 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 feudalism and stuff like that, but you literally have no choice. And, and, uh, and I'll, I'll shut up. But I mean, the whole thing about, you know, why they were forced to do that during feudalist times, which easily transitions to the next kind of, you know, 
economic kind of system that comes up, which is why do we keep toiling today? Well, what do you mean why? Because I have some kind of like, you know, I have some devotion to freaking uh, going to my job at Walmart or the Amazon warehouse or even even like right. Wells Fargo. I don't do it because of my love for the company. Some people might, I guess, some people might, but I sure shit don't have a choice. I don't have a choice in the matter. You know, I, I don't. So I, not to, you know, but, but, but it, there is that same continuance of feelings of why do you keep grinding on? And it's like, well, because I have no choice in the matter. I mean, you have to, you yeah. literally have to, you know. Well, my die. student loans have, have trapped me oh into God. society and I, you know, cause I almost have a doctorate yep. and, um, and, and, Congrats, by the way. and then decided, well, no, because I dropped out okay. like four years ago because <laughs> I was like, costly, right? It's too costly. And it got to the point where I was like, where, where am I even going to go with this? Mm-hmm. Where am I even going to go with this? Because my life just changed so drastically. And it was like, this is just, and now I just don't even see a reason for it, but I'm still stuck with that commitment of those years of getting that. So yeah, I, I can't just jump in a van and have that hashtag van life, even though I want it more than anything on the planet. Um, uh, or, you know, or people are like, Oh, you could still do that. Well, okay. Maybe that isn't the only thing I want on the planet. I'm just saying that's <laughs> well, um, with me, people. maybe, no, just kidding. maybe we can look forward to the Biden administration eliminating all student loan debt, but I'm not holding my breath. So. Well, you know what, Joe, you brought up an interesting thing and that is um i i've had this conversation actually with with one of my family members who is a trump supporter um but is also a very cool human being you know i i mean in all senses of the word um you know just you look at him you would never think he's 65 he's just an old california surfer dude yeah um and so it shocks me you know when we talk about politics and things um, but he, he raised a really good question when I brought up the whole idea of loan forgiveness. He said, well, where's that money going to come from? Mm-hmm. And then I said, you know what? I thought the same thing. So I'm going to ask you too. And that is, well, what happens to those companies that no longer receive my payment every month? And we were talking trillions of dollars, Joe. Yeah. What happens to those companies? Like what? Like Navient and Nelnet and all these other companies? And uh, the government, because I pay my student loans literally to the United States government. Yeah. So Annette has uh, some student loans that she pays directly to the U.S. government as well. I don't know how the who, hell she... Who does have her doctorate, right? Who does she's have a, a doctorate. Med- a yep. medicinal doctor, yep. right? So she's got a doctorate. Yeah. Um, she's freaking awesome. She's 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 the shit. Um, so... Um, she pays her loans directly to uh, uh, the federal government, which is a trip because we went to the same schools and we got, you know, different educations, but we took loans out from the same institutions. But my loans are with Navient and Nelnet, two companies who, as has been expose time and time again, John, uh, 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 not John Stewart, but John, uh, uh, God, what is his name on HBO? John Oliver. John Oliver, dude, for Chrome 6. Um, uh, you, you listen to my people. That's awesome. <laughs> well, it's our people. It's our Gen X people, isn't it? Kind of, but uh, but 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 there's criticisms. Anyways. Um, yes. Um, so it's his, he's done great exposés, and everybody else has on uh, student loan debt. They bought these loans for freaking pennies on the dollar, um, and, and yet they're collecting on a massive amounts of interest. You see... Twitter post constantly saw one yesterday where, you know, the documents were, were snapshotted just for everybody to see. 
10,000 loans, uh, $10,000 uh, in loan debt. I've been making payments for two years. Happy to report that I now, uh, I now owe uh, $10,233 uh, kind of thing. Yep. So, well, wait a second. You'll, you'll never get ahead of it. It seems like kind of Ever. the point. Um, so that, that's one thing. I, where's the money going to come from? Now, that, that does get tricky. I'm, I'm not one to just say that, you know, who cares? But I am one to start looking at uh, whether we truly need to put these kinds of uh, uh, stipulations and, and, and kind of governors on what we spend. Where the money, where can the money come from? Well, first of all, the money can come from any number of places if you want to get all Bernie about it. There's trillions of dollars or, you know, hundreds of billion dollars initially in tax money that we never collect, that we allow corporations to freaking keep from us. And they have their PO boxes in Ireland or the Caymans or whatever, just so they can consider themselves a non-U.S. entity kind of thing or a non-U.S. corporation. So they don't pay taxes. Uh, or they have places like GE, which because of all its carbon offsets and all the other things that it does, it's happy to report that it pays, it pays zero dollars in taxes. Look, there's so many protections in place for massive financial entities. And there's so few protections in place for people like you and me. We're just on the hook for a debt we'll never pay back as opposed to other people who, well, because they have so much in, in, in you know, of their assets tied up in this, we can't just let them fail. Uh, that's one thing. Two, I, I do, I'm starting to become much more interested in the idea of uh, MMT uh, economics, which I'm, I'm not saying there aren't criticisms of, but the modern monetary theory. Uh, well, one idea is that we print the money. The federal government's budget does not act the same way that you or my budget acts. We don't, we, we have to have a collection of money, usually before we go and spend money on something. We can use credit, but our credit might be maxed out. Credit might not be an, op uh, an option. So basically, we have to have the money first before we go and spend something. The federal government acts completely opposite to that. We literally fund things, we buy things, and then we collect the money on the back end in taxes, and we tax as needed uh, to make up those, you know, to make up and see if we have a deficit or if we have a surplus. We always run a deficit. Um, but the money is can be printed, and I know that that seems absurd to people, but that literally could happen, and that we make up that money over a course of a long period of time, 10, 15 years, in more uh, aggressive taxes towards those who have the most money. The problem is, is that we don't really have anybody who's really interested in a, a kind of like, you know, pursuing those kinds of ideas because they're seen as socialistic, and that's not who we are. We're not a socialist people. We're capitalist people. And so both parties tend to quash that kind of thinking. That Both parties wag their fingers and say, we can never have Medicare for all because where's the money going to come from? And I don't, I don't want to keep going, but um, the money can come from places if we truly want to. And lastly, it is kind of like disheartening to hear that we can never quite crack this nut when we're supposed to think at the same time that we are truly the most gifted and the most brilliant and the most, you know, persevering and wonderful people to ever make a nation. And yet these kinds of things, which would radically benefit millions of people, um, are just, we just can't crack that nut. Maybe later. And so we get incrementalism. We get kind of like, we get the, the, the kind of Kamala Harris who said that, you know, it's not going to be student loan forgiveness, but maybe $10,000. And attached oh, to that ten thousand dollars, one that wouldn't do anything. It wouldn't do anything. To my almost, you know, doctorate degree and loans. Oh my god, it's not even a scratch. If you like, if you have to meet a certain criteria, which most everybody would never meet. So 
you know, those are the kinds of things we're looking at and how would it work to your, to your friend? How would we pay for it? Um, I don't know. We would pay for it the same way that we somehow pay for our DOD budget every single freaking year kind of thing. I don't know. We can get creative with it. We're smart enough. If we truly want to, uh, I, 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 it's, I'm certain we can do it. And, and that's without going too much deeper into well, but here's the here's the thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna take it back to sort of the the his, history stuff that we were talking a bit about about before, and then take that pin out of what happened in D.C. Do you think that um, what we're seeing is kind of a resurgence of um, this elite class running the show, and this is why? Um, and, and, and you're getting pummeled with, um, you know, on both sides, on both sides to me, the farther left and right you go, you meet right in the middle. It's a circle to me, right? You just keep, you're just on the other side of the circle instead of being a, a centrist. Now you're just like an anarchist in a way, like both sides. So what do you, what do you think of that? Like what I'm, do you, do you know what I'm trying to say? I think I do. Um, I, I do think I do. Um, it, I, we're at a we're at a period of time where um and it's nothing new i mean that you know not to get all you know history and stuff like that but a little bit um you know we had a it's kind of why you're here Joe. thank you all right then let me <laughs> you allow do, me you have a bachelor's and a master's hey. in history so that's why we're doing this um, <laughs> so please sir we had school a, us. we had a new deal uh a government uh which was much more uh, uh kind of like you know uh geared towards providing for the social classes who had been uh, ignored for so long, coming out of a depression, uh, you know, and, and that's coming out of, uh, first of all, I know we're going to go with this a little bit as well. Um, the early 20th century was a time of extreme left-wing politics and a resurgence of it. Uh, we saw massive uh, 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 global strikes in this country. We saw the rise of Eugene Debs and socialism. Uh, we, we, this is, this is actually a very socialist nation. Uh, it's just that the, later on, especially post-World War II, uh, we saw an unbelievably sophisticated campaign to destroy those values. But in the New Deal era, we had this kind of very much, uh, uh, these feelings of we have to provide for the people in need and our main enemy is concentrated financial power. Now, wasn't new. The populist party of the late 19th century, the, the late 1800s and early 1900s, uh, was a third wave uh, party um, who was trying to push Democrats farther to the left, and they were extremely, extremely uh, uh, aggressive towards the collection of financial power. They were farmers. Their farms were being bought out by huge corporations who were taking over farming. Long story short, blah, blah, blah. Uh, they emerged as, a, as a, a third way to push Democrats left. New Deal era politics, same thing. Let's recognize financial power and the collection of financial power as an enemy because it's trying to siphon as much money, uh, which is not getting to the people. It's trying to exploit more, which is what it does because that's how profit is created. And then, um, long story kind of short, World War II happens. We have this crazy economic boom. Everybody's just like happy. That's not true, actually. There's massive freaking economic disparity. People are, are, are not equally happy, but we do see the rise of the middle class, and we do have higher tax rates and progressive tax rates. People are getting taxed like the, the 80% and stuff like that in the 1960s. And then 
the god dang 70s happened, Trish, which, I mean, the literally the era that we're <laughs> born, the god dang forsaken 70s happened, and we have this change. We have Nixon and this, this, this complete disillusionment and this distrust in government, and we have this rise of this new class of people, this new strain of people, not class, this new strain of, of, of liberal Democrats who want to get away from seeing finance, organized financial power as the main enemy. And they want to they want to actually kind of embrace that. They want to see what they can uh, uh, can do with, you know, well, maybe deregulation. We had seen the creation of the EPA. We had seen the creation of OSHA. We had seen the creation of other federal regulatory bodies because we had seen a need for it. Um, those things were actually hampering profits. And we just had this new, and you've heard the word, this new neoliberal type of, yep. of, of of recognition that, well, maybe if we actually kind of stop doing that, we can curry more votes with more wealthy donors and we can kind of create this new system where, you know, we can actually kind of hit a middle road. And um, so, so there's nothing new of where we are now. This is just a long continuation from the, what's called the Watergate babies, you know, the post-Nixonian first class of Democratic senators and Congress members who really uh, uh, ran with these ideas and went into uh, Carter a little bit, really hit with Reagan in, in, the, in the U.S., really hit with Thatcher in Britain, uh, ideas of personal responsibility. If you're down and out, if you have no money, if your job sucks or you lost your job, basically you were on the line for that. And there's no social net uh, that's going to protect you. We were going to cut oh, the welfare. Bootstrap theory. Bootstrap freaking theory. You're on the, you're on the toll for your own freaking misery kind of thing. And then we saw that transition into Clinton, who largely supported those beliefs. And not that he didn't have anything for, for, for kind of progressive uh, policies, but he kind of really didn't. When you look at NAFTA, when you look at like, you know, the, the, the welfare reform, when you look at the freaking crazy, just like ramping up of the, uh, uh, of the, uh, of the, uh, uh, law enforcement and the, and the, the, uh, the um, judicial systems of putting more people in jail, which creates crazy economic strife on those families. And that's Clinton. I mean, that's supposedly like a very liberal um, president, like a, like a Hallmark. And the same thing with Obama. So here we are where, and I'll shut up in a minute, here we are at the, at the, at the effect of what happened on Wednesday and what's happened with Trump over the last four years. And, and I think the argument of I'm not going to get into it, but the argument that your listeners can at least maybe research if they don't already know, but how much the Obama administration with its really, with bailing out the banks, with bailing out the, uh, uh, um, uh, with the uh, uh, TARP, which Bush did, but Obama continued, you know, and the automotive industries and everything that we've always wanted to preserve, which is basically companies that are too big to fail. And this disillusionment we have with, well, where the, where the hell are we then? You know, and, and the rise of Bernie Sanders and and truly left wing populist politics, not that not that garbage that is that is played off as populism, which is Trump, you know, disgusting, you know, foul ideas that basically are just like, you know, right wing kind of fashy policies and, and beliefs. And that's seen as populism. That's not Bernie is a truly populist populist where it's it's left wing rhetoric that's kind of like bringing people up to go, yeah, why, why are we paying so much in our student loans? Why do we have to pay so much for our uh, medical costs and, and all these other grievances when these companies have so much and they hoard so much wealth kind of thing? So I don't know if that really answers, but right. that's the state of why no, we're no, at no. where we're at. And I, I get your horseshoe Definitely. theory, but I, I don't know that it's, 
I don't know that we're in a state of anarchy, but I, I, I don't know. I kind of wish we were. But. Well, and maybe not anarchy, <laughs> but, but um, <laughs> yeah, um, I'm just thinking in terms of you've got such a, a large group of people who are suffering. And I mean, Immense. there's a lot of parallels you could take. You could take, you know, how the Nazis um, were able to rise to power oh, yeah. in Germany post-World War One because so many people felt slighted. They were in poverty. Um, but so, yeah, but I, I, I appreciate all the things that you're saying, though, that this is kind of a little more of a unique situation because... Um, the route that we've come from is a bit different, but um, as as a historian, and and I want to bring back Jefferson because um, you had mentioned him earlier. Oh, yeah. um, are you kind of impressed with how our founding fathers have been able to control the 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 sort of tyrannical? I used the word tyranny earlier, um, and you can correct me if there's a better term, but the tyrannical sort of um, activities. Of Trump, because I've I've often seen the parallels of, I mean, this maybe is like a whole nother hour <laughs> to be like, hey, um, just in a nutshell. Um, but um, are you kind of impressed with the founding fathers and the Constitution and Bill, like everything that was created to keep us from having um, a monarchy, a dictatorship? Oh God, no, God, no. <laughs> oh, Cherish. that's no. not what I wanted to hear. No. <laughs> Oh, okay. So, uh, what's the reality? Uh, well, it's not the reality. It's just uh, it's it's um, it's a perspective. Um, I'm I'm of the perspective that uh, absolutely not. Um, I think that um, that document, in particular, the Constitution, uh, uh, and the, the Declaration of Independence, um, which um, was so influential in its day, um, are. I mean. Uh, <sighs> I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. You know, go on forever here. But uh, um, essentially, no, because they're full of too many contradictions. And they're from the very beginning. Uh, they were documents that twofold. One, they never achieved from the very beginning what they said they were implemented and and written to specifically achieve. And, and I'm sure you heard plenty of this, and your listeners have heard plenty of this. But the gross contradictions of you know, what Thomas Jefferson laid out in the Declaration of Independence of what was so important uh, and why it was so important to break away from tyrannical Britain when so grossly and egregiously um, at the same time, they knew they were gonna, not going to abolish slavery under any circumstance were they going to abolish slavery. They knew they were not going to give the women the road. They knew they were not going to give uh, uh, men who did not own land the right to vote as well. Adams writing to his wife and her saying, please remember the women, and him basically going, no, <laughs> no. Um, and then the Constitution in Madison and the Constitutional Convention and the rewriting of the Articles of Confederation and, and deciding that there is there's a need for a more uh, um, kind of like, you know, just this, this hallmark of what we stand for, which is the Constitution, which cannot get ratified unless there is an additional Bill of Rights attached to it, which only then do we see like the things of, you know, what, what's in the Bill of Rights, like the protections, the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, that was not even in there. That wasn't even a part of it until the state said, we're not going to ratify this unless you give us a Bill of Rights as well, declaring officially what are our rights. It's kind of cool because like, Yo, you'll miss me with all of that kind of like platitudinal stuff. Tell me literally what's going to be protected. Okay, well, here's your Bill of Rights kind of thing. Um, but even with that, 
No, no. I mean, no. What happened? We went, they didn't even, I mean, the word slavery does not appear, to the best of my knowledge, I think I last looked at this in grad school, but it does not appear, to the best of my knowledge, in the Constitution whatsoever. There is the three-fifths clause, but they don't even recognize the institution of slavery while we're talking about freedom, and, that, and, and they know about that. We know that they're having debates about that. That's the thing, is that the founding fathers, that big collection of people were, were like, you know, throwing inkwells across the room kind of thing. Like, you know, we need to recognize this to where the majority said, no, we don't. Um, so, no, I do not find a lot of... Um, I don't find a lot of, like, you know, patriotism. I don't get roused up by the ideas of it. Um, and it's not because uh, I hate my country or anything like that. I really do truly love the idea of what America was supposed to be. And I really look forward to the day that we can actually accomplish that. But I'm not going to bullshit anybody and myself especially uh, and say that um, we've hit it. You know, yo, we did it. Good for us. We 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 did a freedom. We did a, you know what I mean? We did a land of liberty. How, how despicable would that be for like the, the Sioux people who are literally like 10 miles from me right now? You know, no, I, I can't do that. So, and that could be like, you know, some other time we can come back and talk about this. But no, the gross contradictions of those founding documents and the founding fathers and boy, I mean, Washington, man, and Jefferson and, and so many of them. But no, um not not very heroic people in certain contexts and and then to me uh very important contexts sorry no no that's sorry okay that. what but um what i'm thinking it, no and i mean you're preaching to the choir because i i know a lot of this stuff so i do <laughs> i am baiting you <laughs> but uh not all of it i mean but but Thanks. just uh you know a little bit obviously not to the extent you do but um but uh, you know i guess the question that I'm that I'm really looking for the answer to is though um, is that Trump is trying very hard to stay in office, mm -hmm. but with the creation of our government the way it is, yep. it's not going to happen. So I guess yep. I guess that's where I'm I'm wondering if if you're impressed that we've been able to at least keep someone like him out of office. You're right. There's a very um, it's it's not okay across the board there it has it was created to keep people down yes um, it was women and people of color and yes. yeah native Pours. americans absolutely uh, just absolutely um but it was it was also meant to keep um lots of white people in power <laughs> yes uh instead of one yeah, and the and the checks and balances system seems to have kind of worked in this situation. Uh, that being said, Pence is not going to invoke the Twenty Fifth Amendment because he he will not have the support uh, through Congress. So I mean, it checks and balances, but he's also like you know this Twenty Fifth Amendment seems like it's just an obligatory kind of addition uh, because you know, in what circumstance, if not this circumstance, under what circumstance would it ever come into freaking play? 
Um, so it, yeah, checks and balances, but those can also be kind of like a worst enemy kind of thing. Like, oh, well, you can oh, but he can't. Oh, never mind that kind of thing. Oh, well, because he's bound by this yeah. paper instead of being freed to to work. So do you think? But then that, again, that um, might be that. That sounds kind of tyrannical too. I we don't you know, and that's where this gets very difficult, and you start to sound like an idiot because I'm like you know well. In this case, but, you know, I'd also like to see this, but not, it, it gets too muddy. But I do see what you're saying. Am I, I, I wouldn't say that I'm impressed, but I'm very thankful that they did kind of enact protections like this. But um, it also led, you know, and, and not only that, but, but the electoral college system, the gerrymandering, freaking absolute joke of a system. We've, right, we have the moving so many, of district lines. Yes, dude, like, we have so just, many protections yeah. in place to kind of see that this happens. The fact that I live in Montana, which gets three electoral votes and, 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 get, and sends two people to the U.S. Senate, um, why again? I mean, my, the population of my entire state is but a fraction of the of one region of California. And I'm sorry, but what do we care more about? Like the, the republic states or the, the people who inhabit those things? Well, clearly we care about more about the, the impression of the republic state because why my state gets three electoral votes makes no sense. Um, it's just that that's, that's kind of the, the, everybody gets at least that. Well, if we want to maybe change the idea of, you know, getting elections stolen from us every single time or the threat of it being there, I don't know, maybe revisit, maybe revisit those hallowed documents. Um, but uh, I don't think they will, but anyways, yeah. Right. Right. Yep. You know, Joe, I feel like we could talk another hour. So sorry I'm, I'm going to have to say, sorry we didn't get to DC. well, no, that's okay. I mean, we, we just, there's just so much yeah. to, to talk about. So um, maybe we could do a part two cool. where you come back and um, we talk more about, you know, just we did a little little history and then maybe we can unpack kind of modern, you know, times. Talk about fascism. Yeah, absolutely. And, and talk about fascism and and what really is socialism versus versus fascism. Oh, I and, love that. You know, all that. Yeah, cool. absolutely. So so definitely come back. But right now we're going to make it a little we're going to lighten the mood a little bit. And um, from from all of that, listeners, dear listeners, uh, you know, that that's a lot to to stew in and, and think of. So um, we'll we'll uh, we'll leave it there for now, because sure. that's a good place. To, cool. to let that go until you come back Thank for you. part two. Does that sound good? Absolutely. Okay. Are you ready for the rapid fire questions I'm going to ask you? I prepared. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. What's your favorite memory from childhood? Oh my God. None. Uh, I would say, um, <laughs> um, I, I remember when I was, uh, I, I didn't really listen to a lot of uh, music in the eighties, which sorry for your second question, but I'll have something. Uh, but my brother sent me a mixtape once when I was, uh, living away from my mom. My mom had kind of gone away for a while. So I was living with my grandparents in like fourth or fifth grade. And it was a very, very, very difficult time. Uh, I feel very alone uh, all the time. But my brother sent me a mixtape that had like a bunch of really cool music. And I felt, I loved it so much. It had like Love and Rockets on it. It had a like, you know, Bauhaus on it. This very kind of like, you know, what he was into at the time, um, which was kind of very goth, but also just very hit music. I I cherished that tape. I took that tape to school to show it off to people. And like, 
at that time, I did not feel very cool. I felt very loserish. But knowing I had that tape like in my jacket pocket and showing it to people was like the first time that I, I knew that I had something cool. And there, like if somebody was like, you know, like even if somebody wanted to front and be like, you know, that's not cool. I just that tape gave me so much confidence. I mean, like, what? Are you freaking kidding me? My brother sent me this tape from the city. You know, he lived in like Yorba Linda. Um, so I knew I had something cool. That's I, I think about that kind of very often, it seems like, especially nowadays for some reason. But that was a very cool moment. Just knowing I had that and it was something cool, man. It was cool. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, is your favorite 80s band or musician from that cassette tape? <laughs> Hell no. Oh, no, dude, man, if you would no. been like, yeah, Bauhaus, bitch, I'd be like, wow. on tail, man. Nope. <laughs> nope. Now, I, I didn't really listen to music in the 80s, and I I, uh, I, I was thinking about it, like, I'm, I'm playing through, like, the USB stick, and there's, like, Duran Duran, and there's, like, The Cure that comes up, but that's all Annette's music, um, who's much more into that kind of stuff, and I, I never liked The Cure, and I like, I, Duran Duran comes on, I'm like, yeah, this, cool, this band's freaking cool, dude. Uh, I can recognize the good music or whatever, but what's my favorite, like, kind of, like, band from the 80s kind of thing would probably be, like, the Beastie Boys. It's like, that's, that's a, oh, a, a nice. matter of the 80s where it's, like, that takes me back. License to Ill. But then they were yep. really a 90s band. Very much. Right. Well, they really came to be in the yeah. 90s. Just yeah. blew up with Paul's Boutique and... Check um, Your Head, you know, Ill Check Communication. Oh, God. Those Dude. albums are good. Landmark. So what about your favorite 80s film? Um, one, Red Dawn. So um, you kind of explained why you went to college, yeah. but... Um, so it sounds like it was a little of, well, why don't you just tell me, why did you go to college? Uh, I went to college because I thought it, I went to college because I thought it was going to better my life. I thought it was going to better my life. I thought a degree was going to put me at the top of the, um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the pool of, of applicants. It was going to, it was going to be a, a, a step uh, up. That's it. And, and Joe, last but not least, if you could give a bit of um, advice to any generation, older or younger, what would you say? Uh, I would say if uh, anybody ever tells you that you should believe something and then that person does not give you as much information as possible, if that person is not ecstatic and excited to give you as much ex direct information as possible, that person's a con. That person is conning you. That person has either been duped by a con at least, or is trying to con you. Anybody that, that wants to change your views on something is going to have evidence and is going to want to share it with you. Um, and I think at this point where we are so easily duped by things that are, ba by people that are basically saying, this has happened in the world and you question them, they go, it's everywhere, man. Go, go, go research it yourself. Go look it up kind of thing. That person is either a dupe or a con. Good advice. Well, Joe, thank you so much for taking time to be on the podcast today. Thank you. What a pleasure. This has been amazing. Thank you, Trish. Thanks for listening. And if you think this is worth listening to, please subscribe, share, and leave a review. Be kind to each other, listen to each other, and let's stop being separated by our differences. I don't want to be an army one.